Hi, this is Louis Canio. Welcome to the Doctor and Dad podcast. This fast-paced weekly podcast delves into the latest scientific findings on how we can all live longer and better lives. I'm the dad, and my daughter, Nicole, is a family medicine doc who trained at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. We hope you enjoy this short, informative show, and please be sure to visit thedoctorandad.com. Uh, and by the way, the doctor is abbreviated in that. So it's T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for the show notes um, and other resources to help you learn about extending your health span. Within the notes, you'll find links to a bunch of stuff we discussed. So be sure to check it out. And thanks for listening. Hi, doctor. Hi, Dad. So to, this is our last uh, podcast of 2020. What a year it's been. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think we did. I don't actually, I got to go back and count, but we did over 20 of them. So we weren't, you know, we weren't quite on it every other week uh, kind of track, but, but not, not too far off of that. Hopefully yeah. um, with you uh, changing your jobs next year, we can, uh, we can do even more next year. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see about that. That's non. That was a non-committal. Yep. That was that was a. We'll we'll see. I mean, I you know every every two weeks I think is maybe a, a good number for our listeners. Case. I agree. Um, so we'll we'll uh, obviously end uh, the the year with a podcast focused on the health story of the year, which is obviously COVID-19. Um, and um, so let's start first with, uh, with your uh, experience in getting the first round of the, of the vaccine. So um, it was interesting because it was, we, we knew it was coming and it was, it got approved for use in Europe first. Um, but we knew that the trials all looked really promising. We did a, we did a podcast. Um, I think it's like two podcasts ago on the COVID vaccines and their safety. Um, so we knew it was safe. We knew um, that it was going to roll out really soon. Um, then we knew there were two great candidates, um, the COVID and Pfizer vaccines, um, and then it just took the FDA giving it emergency use uh, authorization, but, and then they, you know, then shipping it out, distributing it. So it wasn't like Pfizer and Moderna were both prepared. They, they knew that it was going to get approved. Um, so they were prepared to literally like, you know, put these things on trucks and planes right. as soon as it was given approval. Um, now, the exact timeline of when that was going to happen, you know, no one knew for sure, but everyone was getting prepared. And by everyone, I mean, for the most part, hospital systems, but also pharmacies um, and and smaller um, practices as well to distribute the vaccine. Even, I think, grocery stores are also preparing to distribute because you have to you know, it's a, it's a huge undertaking to think about vaccinating the entire, well, the world, but let's just call it the country um, against something. I think the flu vaccine any given year has like a 30 to 50% um, um, 
vaccination rate, rate, <laughs> vaccination rate in the United States. So it's not that many, that many people, but it gives us some good protection because everyone who gets vaccinated protects the, that person who doesn't get vaccinated. Um, and on a side note, this year, I think I had two people not get the influenza vaccine. I usually have to like talk to people I would say one in five, I usually have to talk to about it because they don't want to get it. Um, at least one in five. But this time, I think I only had two who gave me pushback. Everyone else wanted it. Everyone's like, yep, I'll have it. I'll take it. <laughs> no one, you know, they're like, oh, if I can do anything to, you know. Yeah, there is. Uh, I have, I've definitely read some things indicating that, um, that, that, you know, early reluctance amongst people to sign up for, the, the COVID-19 vaccine uh, or take the COVID-19 vaccine, um, the, that early reluctance amongst people is going away, that more yep. and more people are, uh, you know, even people who were doubters are, are now saying, yeah, I'm going mm-hmm. to get the vaccine, which is good. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I was a little skeptical at first about the speed of it, but then once you kind of piece through all the data and everything, again, we don't need to go over the, um, what we already covered, but they're safe, they're good vaccines. So anyways, the undertaking like of what you have to do to prepare to vaccinate um, however many people, I don't know, how many people are in the United States? I don't even know. If well, 300, 330, 340 million, but that includes, you know, people of all ages, let's say, not just adults. So let's just call it 200 million that, yeah, probably two, on a, two, two that need to be, that, that'll get vaccinated. Um, every single one of those people needs a syringe, needs a needle, needs an alcohol pad. Um, and every single one of those vaccines needs a storage space. And for the Pfizer vaccine, that's a special freezer. For the Moderna vaccine, um, it's a much more readily accessible freezer, but the Pfizer vaccine has to be Um, kept at such a cold temperature that you have to have specialized equipment. So it's not like the flu vaccine where you just put it in the fridge. Um, So the, everyone was getting ready for it to come out and getting the freezers ready and getting the, um, getting the materials needed. And as you can imagine, who was able to do that, you know, better and quicker, large hospital systems. Right. So that is where the majority of the vaccines went to large hospital systems and every state was on their own as far as their distribution plan but there was obviously general um there's there was plenty of um advice that every state kind of took obviously which is vaccinate high risk first and healthcare workers so healthcare workers across the board first and then um and then high-risk groups like nursing homes um, and then first responders and all that kind of stuff. So they're all mixed in there. And it's a very kind of complex um, tiered system because it's like, you know, first is ICU and emergency room workers because they're at the highest risk of, of seeing COVID um, and getting exposed. And then it's maybe down from that would be um, primary care because we see the most patients and are, are exposed to any level of illness, you know, right. any given day. And then it's like um, 
and also all the support staff. So not just the doctors, it's nurses, it's medical assistants, it's people who do housekeeping in the emergency department. It's, it's all of that. Um, and then it's like nursing homes, because we know that COVID in a nursing home just wrecks havoc. And then um, maybe down from that would be other medical specialists who are seeing patients, but not necessarily known COVID sick patients, but they still see people and those people could still have, could be infected. And we still need healthcare workers to keep working, you know, regardless of the specialty. Um, and then it's first responders, uh, who like so EMT and um, fire department and police department, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's this tiered system and then it goes down from there that the states kind of made up um, with, I think, the advice of the government and, and whatever. But what actually got executed was a lot more of the hospital systems vaccinating all of their employees first. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, and when you, so you got vaccinated as part of that rollout? Yeah, I barely, just barely. Um, so I, my last physical day at work at a hospital system was the 17th of December. My last actual day as an employee, I believe was the 27th of December because I had some extra PTO time. Um, and the vaccine got rolled out on the 15th of December. So I initially was passed over and wasn't even like, I didn't even get the sign up email because um, I was leaving and wouldn't be there as an employee for the second vaccine that you need to complete the series. And I was like, this is bogus because one of the things that I had kept reading through our hospital system um, emails about the vaccine is that it just said, um, all healthcare workers will be vaccinated, you know, in Nebraska. Right. And it said not just, you know, not just employed healthcare workers, but all healthcare workers. Because you think about all these private practices, private practice, family medicine, internal medicine, primary care, you know, peds, all this stuff, um, who don't work for the hospital system, still out there seeing patients every day, you know, they don't have access to the vaccine. Because... The, the tiered system, which should work well, and they should be on that list, doesn't because the hospital system is, is vaccinating all of their employees first. And when I say their employees, I don't just mean doctors. I mean the secretaries who never see a patient. I mean the administrators who sit in their you know, offices um, and who have no patient-facing role. Um, Shouldn't there not be some sort of segmentation within, even within the, the, the hospital system? I mean, obviously, at, at this point, we don't have enough vaccine to go to everyone who really you know needs mm -hmm. it whether whether they're high risk themselves or in a in a high risk role so i get that um that this is a complex thing to try to distribute it but there are some parts of it that are actually pretty easy like do you have a patient facing role right. yes or no within within a system within the hospital system okay no you have to wait till later and then we all healthcare workers have an associated, you know, NPI number and that sort of thing. And even if you just make the health, but make private practice healthcare workers um, register, you know, and sign up and, and get you on the list of people who get to go into the hospital and get your vaccine. Um, but that is not absolutely not how it's happened and not how it's happened across the country because I have um, friends in multiple different States who are in, private practice who have not gotten the vaccine and some who have not even gotten an email about how and when they'll be able to get the vaccine. Um, so 
So it's an, imp- so it's an imperfect system that's rolling out is the, is the bottom Absolutely. line. Yeah. yeah. And it just is another, it's another um, example just of how the big corporations oftentimes run things regardless of, of the way things should be done. From a public um, perspective, yeah. And it's helpful because it reiterates why, you know, I want to practice um, independently. This is a, a perfect reason. So anyways, I said something and I was like, just because I'm not going to get the be an employee for the second vaccine shouldn't negate my ability to be vaccinated because I'm here now and I've been seeing patients, you know, for the last 10 months of this and I'm still a primary care doctor in the community. Um, and once I brought that to, you know, someone's attention, they were like, yeah, no problem. You can get it. Sure. So that's good. I got that they yeah, they were totally... Right. It was, it was not like an unreasonable, crazy thing, but for Brandon, who's an ophthalmologist um, and private practice, no indication of when he'll be able to get the vaccine. And some would say, well, he's an ophthalmologist, so he's not frontline. However, he's this week alone doing 80 surgeries on people and you get pretty close, you know, to people and there are high risk population and there are surgeries that some of them can be, you know, postponed. They're certainly not vision, all vision saving, but some of them can't be. So, but he's at like the bottom. <laughs> and as far as tears go, ophthalmologists are like just barely above, you know, you, the common <laughs> the, public. The, the, the commoner. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. But the actual process then of getting the vaccine was pretty simple. Like, once you're quote unquote on the list, you walk in, you have a card that I'm sure you've seen people post pictures of that um, is like a universal COVID vaccination card that they write down, you write down your name and birth date, and then they write down the vaccine that you get, the date you got it, and then you have to bring the card back for your second dose. Um, So you walk in and then you have to sign a couple papers that just say you've never had a anaphylactic reaction to anything because that is honestly the only thing that um, is a contraindication to the vaccine if you have an anaphylactic allergy, which I don't know, we can talk about that today or another time, Um, but that's not because it causes anaphylactic reaction. It's just that it's been, there have been a couple of people who have um, had an anaphylactic reaction, but not deadly to the COVID vaccine. And they were people who had otherwise known anaphylactic allergies. Um, So you fill out, you know, you sign the the waiver and then you standing six feet away from the next person, wait in line, and then you get your vaccine just like a flu shot. And that's the beginning and the end of it. It's quite simple. And, but they keep you around for like 15 minutes to make sure that you don't have that anaphylactic reaction. Nope. Oh, they don't. I thought, thought they they asked, they, they they recommend it. They recommend sitting back and hanging around just to make sure you're fine, but they aren't enforcing it. And I just left. You had, you had too much to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But would not be a bad idea to stick around, but that's not like an enforced thing where you have to go sit. Um, So someone who's got a known, I don't know, peanut allergy who's or bee sting allergy or may want to wait around or bring your EpiPen, but I would still get it. If I had a peanut allergy, I would still get the vaccine vaccine. Yeah, because it has been a pretty rare reaction to it. So you're the only reaction you didn't develop a fever because of it or anything like that. No, I had um, a sore arm just like I do with the flu shot. It wasn't anything worse than that, probably for two days. 
Um, I woke up the next day, maybe with a little, yeah, a little headache between the eyes. Um, and I don't usually get headaches. So I did notice that. And I felt maybe a little bit nauseous. Um, but that can sometimes happen any given day, depending on what was going on with my kids <laughs> the night before and how much sleep I got. So I, but the headache I, I did notice, I was like, I think this is probably the vaccine. Yeah. Um, and then other than that, by day three, I felt nothing. So, and, and you've got to go back now when for your second shot. Um, so that would be in another almost two weeks. Cause I went on Thursday. No, not Thursday. I went on Friday. Friday, the 18th. Yeah. So three weeks from that is the Pfizer vaccine, two weeks for the Moderna vaccine. So one to the eighth. eighth oh, and you had the Pfizer vaccine. Gotcha. Correct. Gotcha. Are they, are they, have they now started to, to roll out the Moderna vaccine as well? And Yep. So now they're doing both. And I don't know the exact system. I'm going to we're going to have to make some phone calls for Brandon because he's technically on staff at the hospital system um, because he sometimes has does surgeries out of there. So maybe that can get him um, the vaccine. And I'm sure it's just a matter of time before the health department reaches back out. Well, um, if your experience to our is, uh, to, uh, is uh, any indication, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So make some. Exactly. I know. It's so true. On his behalf. Um, but yeah, it was a simple, simple process and a, a no brainer. Um, again, for all the reasons we already talked about, um, it's a safe vaccine. It's a good vaccine. It's really amazing technology that's been in the works for like 30 years. Um, and I think we might see a lot more mRNA vaccines in the future because the Again, the the kind of way that they function is so smart, and it mounts such a great immune response with such low risk. Right, that's the amazing thing is this, this technology has never been used to create a vaccine that has been widely distributed before. This was a first. Right. That's and obviously with with such effectiveness and so far relatively few you know adverse side effects. Is it, it yeah? If it, it opens up the door to other um, vaccines for other conditions that will be that will be awesome um so it it has um kind of hit the news over the past week or two about this um uk variant that seems to be much more um easily transmissible so um any thoughts on on that and how how kind of concerned should we be so in general i would say that um vaccine viruses mutate all the time. I mean, that's why we see different strains of influenza virus, but the, the, the shifts year to year of influenza and why you have to get a yearly flu virus, those are bigger um, shifts and kind of mutations. But viruses, otherwise, they are, you know, I mean, you can imagine how, how tiny they are and how much replicating happens. And every time they replicate, there's risk of slight changes in their RNA for this particular vaccine or I mean for this particular virus RNA um so those slight changes in the in that kind of genetic material sometimes most of the time does nothing most of the time slight little changes don't do anything sometimes these slight changes or enough changes cause it to become completely you know non-infectious and non-lethal sometimes they sometimes it it kind of gives slight um more infectivity and sometimes more virulence. Um, but again, viruses 
mutate. That's just what they do. Most of the time, it's completely inconsequential. But sometimes if the right series of events happens and if there's enough time, then yes, they're going to mutate to become a little bit smarter. This UK variant um, that is different by one amino acid, which amino acids are like the your DNA and RNA code for um, code for amino acids and proteins. So it changed on like one, literally one small amino acid, which is part of the code for the spike protein. And it didn't change it in as far as how it binds or anything like that. It just changed it, you know, slightly by one amino acid. So there's no reason to think that the vaccine wouldn't work because again, um, the vaccine codes for this, the whole spike protein. So you're talking about one tiny little like fleck of sand on an otherwise like sandcastle. Um, So the vaccine itself gets in to your system and your body sees this little spike protein that the vaccine made um, and it creates antibodies against it. So there's no reason to think that the antibodies that the vaccine is giving you are going to not fight this as well, very but, but well they, just as well. But they are testing that to, to confirm that, that those are, those are still tests that are underway. Yeah, they're definitely researching it and looking into it. And and from the studies that have been done so far, it appears to be a little bit more infectious, meaning m- more people are contracting it. But there's a lot of um, potential, not necessarily biases, but things that you c- that could factor in. It could just be a founder's effect, you know, where a couple, it, you know, it was seen at a couple large gatherings and it was new. Right. So no one had it before. Um so it may be that it's not even more infectious. So those studies are still, still going ongoing, on, but let's just assume yeah. that it's Although more infectious. I, see, I have seen some, some indications recently that, um, you know, they, they initially said it may be as much as 70% more infectious. Um, but I've seen stuff, uh, re- most recent study that estimates it at 56% more, more contagious. But even that's got some caveats to it as to, you know. Absolutely. You know, and then uh, it's so new that... And I mean, back when we, this all first started, I remember that COVID had like a 3% fatality rate because we didn't know all of the, we didn't, we weren't able to catch all of the cases that were minimum, minimally, you know, um, symptomatic. So if you can't, if you can't find all of the cases in a population, your fatality rate's going to be very high because your denominator is going to be really artificially low. Well, right. So, but it may be more infectious. Um, it, it may be that it was just though turned into something like a common cold, which is very contagious, but um, less, um, I'll call it lethal or less severe because that's what it also shows is that it seems to be less, less severe. So I think the takeaways from that would be that viruses mutate all the time. Sometimes it's consequential, sometimes it's inconsequential. Um, this one, if anything, appears to me maybe a little bit more infectious, but less severe, and that the vaccine should still work fine. Effective, yeah. The other thing I've, I've and the way we prevent in... the way we prevent these um, these mutations over time is to get vaccinated. Because if we can get vaccinated and then stop people from getting infected and spreading it, then you know it's going to have way less of an opportunity to continue to mutate. Okay. 
Yeah, and it could it could mutate to be less infectious, less deadly. Exactly. But it also could yeah. go the other way. So that's the that's the, right. kind of the scary part about it. And what I've heard is if it is actually you know as much as fifty percent more um, contagious, then it it kind of changes the equation going forward as to when we can kind of breathe the sigh of relief with these with these vaccines. Essentially, what what a more in, uh, contagious um, virus would mean is you 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 need to roll the vaccine out faster and wider is is right. is, is is a bigger issue uh, right because um, you know you you want to keep the load off of hospitals off of ICU units all that that sort of thing so if you know during this time of the year you get a more, much more contagious variant circulating that is as um, is as uh, lethal so to speak or is as virulent as as um, right. it has been that that's a potentially dangerous situation yep exactly so. Yep. Cross our cross our fingers, and and the other thing is, it's interesting that this was first that variant was first isolated in the UK, um, primarily because the UK does genetic testing of a large percentage of the people who are positive, so they yeah they test those Very viruses versus the US does almost none of that sort of testing. Yep. So yep, this sort of uh, that that sort of UK variant could be pretty prevalent over here but we right we don't know it because we don't do that sort of genomic testing of the of the positive cases which you would think that that's one of the things that you know that you would think that we do do they do definitely do some of it because um i just don't know um when i'm sure it's happening at the bigger hospital systems um the research you know the research hospitals um, because we do know when someone we, uh, we have data about reinfection, you know, and reinfection with a different strain and that sort of thing, um, but not to the degree correct that they're doing. They're and doing. I don't know if the reason, exact reason for that. It may just be what's what's a good utilization of, um, you know, time and resources and what's not. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I don't know if that's if it's research resources or um, or just um, you don't know. Actually, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, reporting on that, so I don't want to conjecture on that piece. But um, so the other the other thing that that kind of um, ties into this is okay. You know, eventually we want to get to what's called herd immunity. So where where enough people have either had the um, disease and therefore have the antibodies or have been vaccinated and therefore have the antibodies. Um, right. And, and I, I was reading something. Um, so you've, initially the people were saying, oh, you know, once we get to 70% of, of people who have antibodies, then we've reached herd immunity and we really don't have to kind of worry about this thing necessarily anymore. Um, but recently people like Dr. Fauci have been saying upwards of 85 percent um, is going to be right. required to reach herd immunity. Yeah, yeah, um, because the other estimates were, were too darn low. So the reality is, you know, the, the estimates that I've seen is you're 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 not going to get to that 
level until maybe the end of the year, given the number of people. And that's U.S. No, never mind. That's where in the world. Right. Exactly. Yep. It's going to be it's going to take a long time. And that's the other thing, too. Like, you don't know when so many people have absolutely no idea when they're going to get their vaccine. Um, So it's hard because you'll there'll be this kind of strange and let's just talk about the people who want the vaccine um, and keep the other people out. But the ones who want the vaccine, it will be a strange kind of thing about who decides who gets it and when, and is it equitable and fair, um, which we already see that it's not completely the case. What about people who don't have a doctor? What if their doctor's not tied to a hospital system? You know, do they need to have the freezers to provide vaccines to their patients? Um, does, we'll almost certainly see a deficiency in vaccinations among people of color and low socioeconomic status, just because that's what happens across the board with all kind of health measures for whatever reason, because um, there's just such an inequity. And then who needs to know your health information? You know, if let's say you're high risk, but um, you know, there's HIPAA and privacy. So you don't necessarily want to say if you have an immunocompromised condition, you have HIV or you have you know, something else. Um, but it needs to be disclosed in order for you to get your vaccine. It just becomes a, there's kind of a lot of moral and ethical um, questions when you think about rolling it out to the general public. Um, and then like, you know, someone who is super healthy, but lives with their really, you know, immunocompromised husband or parent. Right. You know, then right. it makes more sense for that spouse who's healthy to be vaccinated so they don't give it to their, you know, family member. So there's just a lot of complexities to it. And I think in general, you know, the idea is that it's done in the in the best and safest and most equitable way possible. But as we see already, it's not, it doesn't exactly pan out. No, it's not, not optimal by, by a long shot, but... But it is, uh, it's certainly better than three months ago when we didn't know if we had, we're, we're going to have these vaccines. There's already been millions of people vaccinated yeah. in the United States. Yeah. And so. we'll continue. So hopefully just got to get through these next, you know, I think certainly we're expecting the next several months to be rough given holiday travel and all that. So, so yeah. um, stay, stay, stay vigilant because um, boy, you know, these, these people who are passing away and will pass away in the next several months, it's uh, particularly tragic given how close they, they could have been to, to receiving a vaccine that would have uh, literally saved their lives. Absolutely. It's, it's, that is, it's devastating to think about. I saw a stat, um, a stat that said that one in a, every thousand Americans has now died of COVID. Yeah, that is, uh, that's stunning. And, and that many more may die in the next let's say six months exactly yep so stay stay masking and you know stay distanced and the the end is i I see the light at the end of the tunnel but it doesn't make it any easier right now for people yep exactly so so kind of a mixed message to end the year i guess Right. I know. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we end on, on that note? And I look forward to uh, chatting with you uh, in 2021, Nicole. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thanks again for listening. You can visit the doctorandad.com. That's spelled T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com 
for show notes to any of our podcasts, as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not should not disregard or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad 